0: Now we're going to read from the scriptures, returning again to Colossians, and we're going to read from Colossians chapter 1, verse 12, and we'll read right down to verse 20. Colossians chapter 1, and we'll read from verse 12. Let's hear the word of God. Find the place. It's good to hear the Word of God. It's better, in a sense, to see it. A copy a few scriptures before you, and for those online, the words will come up on the screen. Let's hear the Word of God. Colossians 1, verse 12. Giving thanks unto the Father which hath made us meet to be partakers of the inheritance of the saints in light, who have delivered us from the power of darkness, and have translated us into the kingdom of his dear Son, in whom we have redemption through his blood, even the forgiveness of sins, who is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of every creature, For it pleased the father that in him should all fullness dwell and having made peace through the blood of his cross by him to reconcile all things unto himself by him i say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven and you that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works yet now hath he reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy and unblameable, and unreprovable in his sight. Amen. We know the Lord will stamp with his own approval and blessing this reading of his own precious and infallible word. Now this morning, as we continue with our series of studies, our expository sermons in the book of Colossians, I've chosen for my text as Colossians chapter 1 and in the verse 20. Listen to the word of God, it reads as follows, and having made peace through the blood of his cross, by him to reconcile all things unto himself, by him I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. And my theme today I've entitled the preeminence of Christ in the work of reconciliation. Now I believe that the book of Colossians is one of the most precious books in the whole of the New Testament. It's really a glorious book, a a wonderful gem of inspired literature. So let's ask the question, who was the pen man? Who wrote it? And, And the answer of course is found in verse 1 of chapter 1, Paul. The apostle Paul wrote this epistle. And we could ask a second question, where was it written? And the answer is, in prison. Paul is a thousand miles from Colossae as the crew flies. So it's one of Paul's prison epistles. Remember, he's there for the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Why was it written? It's also known as a polemic epistle. That's a big word for children, isn't it? but it really means it was written to combat error and falsehood that had crept into and was being taught in the church at Colossae and no doubt was spreading to other congregations in the region. And once the Apostle Paul was made aware of this false teaching, he immediately gave himself to prayer for the church and its people. And under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he picked up the pen to write this letter. So we could ask another question. If Paul was the pen man and it was written in prison and here's the reason why it was written, it's a polemic letter combating error and falsehood, then we'd ask this question, what's it all about? What's the, the chief goal? What's, what's, what's the main aim? And there's a simple answer, young people, and it's this, to set forth the supremacy or the preeminence of Jesus Christ in his person and work. So there you've learned something about the book of Colossians. It's not only a precious book. It was written by Paul. It was written in prison. It was written for this reason to combat error and falsehood. And its chief aim is to set forth the preeminence of Jesus Christ and his person and work. And when you read and study Colossians 1 verses 13 to 22 very carefully. I put it to you this. That there's no paragraph in the whole of the New Testament that contains any more concentrated information, contains any more teaching or any more doctrine about Jesus Christ and his person and work than this one. Now, we have been studying this very slowly. We've been opening it up, peeling it off layer upon layer. Now, in our studies, what have we learned so far about Jesus Christ? Remember, we have learned that Jesus Christ is the great redeemer of sinners. He is the one who delivered us from the power of darkness and translated us into his kingdom. He redeemed us by the power of his shed blood. And he is the one who bestows upon us a full and free forever pardon. So there's the preeminence of Christ as the great redeemer of sinners. We learn secondly that Jesus Christ is preeminent in the magnificence of his person. He's the image of the invisible God, the exact representation or representative of who God is in the very essence of God's being. Jesus Christ eternally exists as the eternal Son of the everlasting Father. The Bible tells us he's the firstborn of every creature, not a reference to time, but a reference to rank. To importance, to, to to primacy. He existed prior to creation. Then we've seen his preeminence thirdly in creation. Jesus Christ is the creator of the whole universe. Colossians 1:16 to 17. He existed before creation. He created the whole of the universe. All things exist for him and through him. He's not only the primary cause in that he planned it all. He's the instrumental cause. He produced it. And he produced it by the word of his power. And he's the final cause. Because he not only planned it and not only produced it, but he proposed it along with his father. It exists for his glory. The fourth thing we've seen about Christ is this. The preeminence of Christ is the head of the church. Verse 18. And last week we learned that it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And I ask you to understand that the word for fullness of Christ here was the fullness of Christ for fallen sinners. Not a fullness of deity. He is eternally and essentially The only begotten son of the everlasting father But a a fullness In the sense of a a Communicative fullness The Greek word here Is um, pleroma Which means the, the sum total Of divine power and perfection In relation to Communicative attributes And it was all designed to equip the son For the great work of redemption Now I want to add to that Portrait I want to add to that understanding that you have of Christ, and here's another truth that you want to lay hold of, the preeminence of Christ in the work of reconciliation. Now, there's five things in this text about reconciliation. Think about the subject of reconciliation. Look at the text, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. Underline the word reconcile. You see, the word "reconcile" is a Bible word. The word "reconciled" is used six times in the Bible. As a noun, reconciliation it is used eight times. Three of which are in the New Testament. Too, in Two in Second Corinthians, chapter five, verses nineteen or eighteen and nineteen. The word "reconcile" is used some. 11 times and one of those references is found here in Colossians 1 and 20. Here's Paul continuing to magnify Christ in his personal work and he adds this word reconcile. You see this is also one of the great Bible words and it's connected to redemption. You've heard of the word redemption, regeneration, repentance, remission. Only an individual Regenerated by the Spirit of God And made truly penitent and sorry for his sin And redeemed by the precious blood And experienced the remission of his sins Only that individual Is experiencing the reality of reconciliation What does the word reconcile mean As you read it in the Bible? How do you understand it? We can understand it in a political sense Way back in 1991, former president of the United States of Russia, President Gorbachev, President George Bush were having a meeting in Moscow. And this is what they said, we have met here today to reconcile the world. Did they? The answer is no. Only words. You've got to think of the wars that have been fought and the lives that have been lost since then. But people use it, reconcile in a political sense. You could understand it in a financial sense. Two sets of accounts, income, expenditure. And the accountant, well, he must reconcile the two, bring the two together. Either show a loss or show a gain or, or show some sort of balance. We understand it in a personal sense. Interpersonal relationship, there's been a fallout, there's been a breakdown in that relationship, there's been a breach what's the cause we well, got to think of the root cause you got to think of contributing causes and that root cause that contributing cause has to be dealt with and removed so that the former relationship can be restored so that the individuals there for kind of peace and harmony with each other and whatever drove them apart is taken out of the way it is dealt with And if it's not dealt with, of course, there'll never be a real, true, lasting, loving, stable relationship. So we understand that in a personal sense. But Paul doesn't use it neither politically, financially, or personally. He uses it in a spiritual sense. By him to reconcile all things to himself. And chiefly, Paul is thinking of reconciling sinners. Sinners are estranged from God and alienated from him by a life of wicked thoughts and a life of wicked deeds. Isn't that what he says in verse 21? And you, speaking of the church at Colossae, that were sometimes alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now hath he reconciled. In other words, he's restored that broken relationship by removing that enmity, by dealing with that wicked deed, by dealing with those wicked thoughts. And that's the meaning. In a spiritual sense, man is estranged from God. A breach has caused a breakdown in relationship. For all have sinned, the Bible says, and come short of the glory of God. Romans six and twenty three: For the wages of sin is death; the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. And sin must be recognised. Oh, that we could we could grasp that. And therefore, once you recognise it, it has to be repented of. You have to be sorry enough, but sorry enough to quit. And then it has to be remitted or 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 or, or forgiven. And, and once it's recognized and repented of and, and remitted or, or forgiven, and, and therefore it's removed in that sense. And what happens as a result of that? That individual who recognizes their sin and repents of it, seeks God's forgiveness, and once that power of sin broken in their lives, they're reconciled, brought into a right relationship with God. So, so that's the subject of Reconciliation. Notice, secondly, the source of reconciliation. Notice the words in the text. You should underline them. It says, by him to reconcile all things unto himself. And then Paul adds, by him I say. So it's underscored twice. It's repeated for emphasis. By him or or through him. Now, who's the him? Young people, it's a reference to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ is the sole agent in whom or through whom he alone is the one in whom God brings about this great work of reconciliation. See, God made Jesus Christ to perform or hold three particular offices. Jesus Christ is the sole mediator of the new covenant. First Timothy 2 and 5, for there's one God and one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Acts 4 and 12 says neither is there salvation in any other for there's no other name under heaven given among men Whereby we must be saved Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones preached a sermon in Acts 4 verse 12 and he entitled it this way No Second name Why? Because Jesus Christ is the sole mediator He owns no rival Therefore the Church of Rome that teaches that Mary is a co-redentrix or a co-mediator with Christ doesn't hold water. It's not true to the Bible. It's not true to, to Christian experience. The sole mediator of the new covenant is Jesus Christ. I'll tell you something else. He's the sole reconciliator. Why? Because God the Father is the reconciler. And he uses his son, Jesus Christ, as the sole reconciliator to carry out his eternal purpose. God the Father is the one who is doing the reconciling. He's the reconciler. Jesus Christ is the reconciliator, the one who brings eternal deity into contact with fallen, sinful humanity. They're joined together in and through him. So the Son is the reconciliator. He's the one who purchased that right. He's the one who does the work. And every sinner, ruined by sin and Adam, and alienated from God by wicked works, God the Father proposed. That Christ by his mighty work on the cross And by the merit of his shed blood Would provide the ground to reconcile sinners To himself Christ is also The sole propitiator Look at verse 20 By him to reconcile And we'll pause there at the word reconcile Because in the Greek That word reconcile actually means an act that's completed. In other words, it's once for all. And then he adds this, all things unto himself. By him, I say, whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. If I was to read Colossians 1.20 literally, if I was to have the Greek New Testament, it would read like this by him to reconcile once for all, all things unto himself, having made peace through the blood of his cross. See, God made salvation a glorious reality only in and through Jesus Christ in the ground of the blood atonement. Now, I, of course, like you, love the doctrine of the blood atonement. I'm old-fashioned. If the Bible says having made peace through the blood of his cross, then I believe what the Bible says. I'm old-fashioned in that sense. I'm taught to make much of the blood, and we seek to do that in our hemology, We seek to do that in our theology. But you see, in today's religious world, the doctrine of the blood atonement has been downgraded. In fact, it's been demigrated. Take, for example, a statement by the Anglican Church many, many years ago. This is what they say about reconciliation. Now, listen carefully. The reconciliation God effected with humanity is because of the act of the incarnation. Now that sounds lovely, doesn't it? You read that, you hear that, and you think, well, there's nothing wrong with that. But I want to tell you it's wrong. It's another falsehood. It's, it's, it's hogwash. Because it's not the incarnation that accomplishes reconciliation. It's not even Christ's exemplary life. It's not even his sinless life. Because the Bible teaches that all of fallen humanity can only be reconciled by the blood of Christ. So the Anglicans are being mischievous. They're being selective. Now I believe in the doctrine of the incarnation. It's integral to the teaching of the fundamentals of the faith. God was manifest in the flesh. Great as the mystery of godliness. God was manifest in the flesh. I believe also in the sinless life of Jesus Christ. He did no sin. He knew no sin. In him is no sin. I believe in his atoning death and his blood shedding, his bodily resurrection literally from the dead, his ascension to glory. But what I'm trying to bring out, they're all parts of the one perfect life of Christ and his person and work. And you can't separate one from the other. And if you deny one, they're they're like Donamos. They, They all fall. And if there's no shed blood, if there's no propitiator, if there's no propitiation for sin, then there's absolutely no basis for reconciliation. There is no reconciliation without an atoning death, without an atoning blood sacrifice, because that blood sacrifice is necessary to satisfy divine justice, uh, to conform to, to God's holiness, You see, why am I emphasising this? Why is Paul emphasising this? Here's the reason. There were those in Paul's day who said, Jesus Christ is not enough to save. There's those who say, there's other ways to become a Christian. And it's not true today. People think, well, all I have to do is turn up at church a few times during the year. And uh, I'm a Christian. And others say, well, well, I... Was baptized as a child. And a few drops of water was put in my head. And therefore that way I became a Christian. Others say. Well look I walked the Nile, I prayed a prayer. I, I raised my hand in a meeting. And, and now I've become a Christian. There might even be others that say. Well look I'm a Christian. But I also believe in multi-gods. All gods that are spoke about in the world. Including Buddha and Allah. Well those gods and their prophets and preachers They, they all ultimately lead to the one God So I want to tell you that's wrong See these false teachers didn't deny Christ They were out to dethrone him They were saying but he's not God He's just an angel He's one of the emanations proceeded from God he, He's one of the means by which man could reach God He didn't have a real flesh and blood body, but Paul refutes that because Paul is teaching here that the true source of reconciliation is by him alone, exclusively. And he was countering the false teaching. And and, and, uh, the source of reconciliation is by him completely. In other words, he does it by his son. We can't recognize ourselves. And so many live in denial of sin, and they live in denial of God, and they live in denial of Christ. But they fail to realize that only he has the power, because he's been appointed the sole mediator between God and men. He is the sole reconciliator, and he alone is the sole propitiator. In other words, the sole redeemer. And you've got to think of his sufficiency. You've got to think of the sufficiency of his death and blood shedding. You've got to think of these words. Having me at peace through the blood of his cross. The cross speaks about a violent, horrible death. The shedding of blood speaks of his suffering. And what does Isaiah the prophet tell us? But he was wounded for our transgressions. Bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement of our peace was upon him. And with his stripes we are healed. Think thirdly of the scope of reconciliation Look again at the text It says By him to reconcile all things unto himself By him I say whether there be things in earth Or things in heaven So we're going to ask now What is the extent of this reconciliation? What is the all things? Now those words all things have caused a lot of talk Sometimes a lot of empty talk. Paul endeavors to explain it. He says, By him to reconcile all things unto himself. So what are the old things? We'll deal with that. By him I say whether they be things in earth or things in heaven. You see, the liberal church loves this verse. They wrench it out of its context. They use it to teach universal salvation. All things, that means reconcile all of humanity, despite the way they lived, despite what they believed. All are going to be saved at the end of the day. I've even heard it said, and it's written in commentators, by commentators, that even the devil and the demons in hell eventually are going to be saved and brought into heaven and reconciled to God. Now, I want to tell you, that's a lie. How do I know that's a lie? Well turn in your Bible Let's compare scripture with scripture Bear with me for a few minutes Revelation 21 and 8 But the fearful and unbelieving And the abominable And murderers and whoremongers And sorcerers and idolaters And all liars Shall have their part in the lake Which burneth with fire and brimstone Which is the second death Now listen to this verse Revelation chapter 20 and verse 10 And the devil that deceived them was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone Doesn't say he was brought into heaven And the devil that deceived them Was cast into the lake of fire and brimstone Where the beast and the false prophet are And shall be tormented day and night Forever and ever Revelation 20 verse 15 And whosoever was not found written in the book of life Was cast into the lake of fire fire. You see, even though this verse teaches a universal reconciliation of all things, it's not teaching universal salvation. So we need to be clear in our terms. You need to listen very carefully. It's not teaching universal salvation of all humanity involving every creature, including the devil. In fact, the Bible doesn't even mention the words here, all things, It says in earth or things in heaven doesn't mention things under the earth. So we can rule out the devil. We can rule out all demons under his charge. Every fallen angel, every evil wicked spirit. They're held at this minute in everlasting darkness, in everlasting chains until the judgment of the final day. And they will never experience the power of redemption. Oh, they'll experience the power of condemnation in the last day. Depart from me, you cursed Ye wicked, in the everlasting fire prepared for the devil and his angels. They, they await eternal judgment, but never eternal salvation. I'll tell you something else. It doesn't even include all the children of Adam. It's not speaking of every individual who's ever been born into the world. What about those who die in their sin? What about those who deny Jesus Christ and his person and work? Die as they lived, dying as Christ's rejectors, dying as rebels. Over in the New Testament We read in Matthew chapter 7 The Lord Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount Verse 21 Not everyone that saith unto me Lord, Lord shall enter into the kingdom of heaven But he that doeth the will of my Father Which is in heaven Many will say to me in that day Lord, Lord have we not prophesied in thy name And in thy name have cast out devils And in thy name done many wonderful works And then will I profess unto them I never knew you Depart from me Ye that work iniquity in other words, they'll never experience the power of God's redemption They may experience the power of condemnation in judgment But not redemption We can rule out the holy angels Why? See, some people teach well, all things that includes the holy angels Why would holy angels need to be reconciled to God? They don't need to be reconciled to God Why? Because they haven't sinned They are sinless creatures They don't need redemption They don't need reconciliation. They live in obedience to their creator and maker. The Lord Jesus didn't die on the cross to save sinless holy angels. How do I know that? Well, the Bible tells us that. Hebrews chapter 2, he says in verse 14. For as much then as children are partakers of flesh and blood, he also himself likewise took part of the same, that through death he might destroy him that had the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver them who through fear of death were all their lifetime subject to bondage. For verily he took not in him the nature of angels, but he took on him the seed of Abraham. Wherefore in all things that behoved him to be made like unto his brethren, that he might be a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God, To make reconciliation for the sins of the people. There's the word again. Reconciliation. We can rule out those that teach all things just exclusively has to do with the elect. The elect, I believe, are part of all things. But it doesn't say all people. It says all things. It includes the elect. But it's not exclusive to them. So I have to take difference to um, the commentator John Gill on that particular score. All things refers to men separated from God. Those that are sinned in Adam. Those that are guilty sinners. Those that are polluted sinners. It includes them. But it also includes the material world. See remember this creation no longer honors God in the way it should. There's constant tribulation. The world's in bondage to sin It's waiting until it's set free It's waiting until redemption You turn over there to Romans chapter 8 Romans chapter 8 Listen to these words Romans 8 says in verse 21 Because the creature itself Shall also be delivered from the bondage Of corruption into the glorious Liberty of the children of God For we know that the whole creation groaneth and travaileth In pain together until now And not only so They, but ourselves also, which have the first fruits of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting for the adoption to wit, the redemption of our body. You see, why does the creation groan because of sin? Creation feels the effects of sin. Creation even feels the effects of the cross work of Christ. Because Jesus Christ died to procure a kingdom. Paul has mentioned that the kingdom of his dear son. And that kingdom will one day be ushered in. And that kingdom will bring about a new heaven and a new earth wherein dwells righteousness. And you've got to think of the immediate context here. And in the immediate context, we have God's eternal purpose. And what's that purpose? Verse 19 For it pleased the Father that in him should all fullness dwell. And we already told you the word Father's in italics. And that's rightly so, properly translated. And that takes us right back to verse 12, giving thanks unto the father. He's the one who's been talked about. And then we're we're introduced then to the father's dear son. Verse 13, and all follows is, is about him. What the father does in and through him and for him in this giving of the communicative fullness that, that dwells in Christ the fullness of power and perfection to do the work of redemption it's all connected to the Father's good pleasure and the Father's good pleasure is worked out in the world on the basis of redemption the, the blood sacrifice of Christ that, that's all part of God's eternal plan and purpose and it's connected to his eternal son and every aspect of that eternal purpose has been worked out through the son in the redemption. And God's the author of the old creation. God's the author of the new creation. And that's what he's dealing with here. But Whenever he says, I say whether there be things in earth or things in heaven. Ultimately, it's men who are separated from God, reconciled through the Son, And this material world that's going to be uh, made anew, uh, wherein dwells righteousness. So there's the scope of reconciliation. Notice quickly in Second or Fourthly, the security of reconciliation. He says in the first part of the text, and having made peace through the blood of his cross. Peace with God. The peace of God. Maybe you're listening to me right now and you are afraid to die. There are some people who are afraid to die. Paul dealt with that. Hebrews chapter 2 verse 14. They're thinking, what is going to happen to me when I die? Well, this is the answer. If you're in Christ, And if you've been reconciled to God and that has been sealed by the blood of Christ, then you have peace with God. You have a relationship with him on the ground of the blood and you have no need to fear. You can let go of your fears. Let me ask this question. Think of those in heaven, the spirits of just men made perfect. Is there any possibility that they could be thrown out of heaven? Is there any possibility that they would turn their back on God and apostatize and end up in hell? The answer is no. Well, if that is true of those in heaven, then it will be no more true of those on earth. Why? Because if you turn back to Romans 8, remember what Paul says. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other creature shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus the Lord. Maybe you're struggling with sin. Maybe you are a backslider this morning. Maybe you're struggling with other issues. And you have no confidence in yourself And you're saying, well, what do I do? And I'm saying, look to Christ. Keep your eye on him, the sole mediator, the sole reconciliator, the sole redeemer of, of God's people. Remember the hymn writer that was able to say this, yes, I to the end shall endure as sure as the earnest is given, more happy but not more secure, the glorified spirits in heaven. They might be more happy in heaven, But they're not any more secure because if you're in Christ, then you never can be lost. There's the security of reconciliation. You have peace with God. You're in a relationship of harmony and love and security. I want you to think of this as we finish. I want you to think of the sense of reconciliation. Notice the word and. And having made peace through the blood of his cross. It's a joining word. What sense do we have of reconciliation now? What do you need to do? Well, let me suggest this as we finish. Bow before God. If you haven't already, take the sinner's place. Realize who you're dealing with. Recognize who God is. So many young people sit in church and they behave foolishly because their mind wanders and they're listening, but they're not listening. And it's easy to dismiss it all and not actually hear from God, not realize who God is and whose presence they're in. But if this word comes to us verbally, reconciled, then we've got to ask, am I reconciled to God? Has this word reconciled impacted on our mind? Is is my breach Uh, been dealt with to bring me into a right relationship with God will you come and fall at his feet like Thomas will you say my God and my Lord to him because this is the impact that it ought to have upon us it should make us bow before the Lord it should make us believe in him we should pray remember Jonah where did he pray from the whale's belly We can pray to God anywhere. You can pray in your seat. You can pray in your car. You can pray at home. But as you pray, then you've got to plead before the Lord. Remember the scripture says, Seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these other things shall be added unto you. The word believe means to trust and adhere to and rely on. And are you believing in this living in the true God? Are you trusting in him alone through his son, the mediator, the propitiator, the the reconciliator? Are you fully relying on him? And let me press home one other thing. You see, here's the impact that this should have. Not only should we come and bow before Him and recognize and realize who He is and believe in Him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength so that we trust it here and rely solely on Him, but we should behave before Him. If He is preeminent in all of these ways that I have mentioned, if He is preeminent even in this work of redemption, and you say, I'm reconciled to God. Then remember, he's also preeminent as far as your life is concerned. And all that matters is that you live for him and before him, under him. And it's not about riches, and it's not about the best education that's possible, and it's not about becoming famous. Maybe you're listening to me right now, and you're at a crossroads in your life. Something has happened, and, and your sin has been found out, and you're wondering, what on earth am I going to do? Well, this is what you do. Come and bow before God. Believe and trust alone in him. And, and behave before him. And you hand your life, luck, stock and barrel over to him and say, here you are, Lord. Here's my life Take it. I want to live for Christ. If Christ is preeminent, I want his preeminence to be seen in my life so that he's the center. You see, that's the sense of reconciliation with which Paul writes. That's what he's aiming for. That's what we ought to aim for this morning May the Lord take these few words and bless them to us